it's not it's the, the, the metal media the metal website I mean, you, can, you can tell I'm in a shit mood today it's fucking it's, it's And welcome to the Temple of Blair podcast, episode eight, I think. I don't fucking know, and I've lost count. Uh, it's a weekly metal news roundup show, um, and other fucking rabbit holes that we jump down. What more could you want? Uh, I'm Jim, and with me, as always, is my co-host, no one. Uh, Raw is not here this week. He's invading castles in Switzerland or something on his holidays with his missus, which is all good, so I'm on my Todd today. This is all completely acceptable and not at all weird. So I'm going to do the best I can with the cup of coffee that I've got in my hand. Um, quite low energy today. I'm mentally and physically and emotionally exhausted, but that's cool because we've got a shit ton of fucking news to get through. Um, one thing that's quite funny, though, is I had a package through today. Um containing a lot of fluorescent green rubber items, um, which I wasn't quite expecting. So I got I had an injury last year pertaining to my hobby, playing underwater hockey. So my right pinky finger is somewhat immobile. Um, after a number of doctor's appointments and x-rays, it's turned out there's nothing frigging wrong with it, apparently, even though I can't stretch it out. So I've decided to take matters into my own hands, and I have ordered a Hercules grip, hand grip workout kit. Uh, which contains an adjustable hand gripper, resistance range of 22 to 88 pounds. Fucking hell, Hercules, you grip, you're not giving me my metrics. Don't want this imperial shit. Uh, a silicon ring resistance level of 50 pounds. Finger strength of resistance of 4 pounds each finger. Finger stretch of medium resistance. Um, so I've just got a load of neon green fucking rubber things just fucking gallivanting around my office. Which is pretty cool, I guess, but one's just a fucking... It looks like a cock ring, but it's neon green. So that's my life for the next few uh, days, I think. See if I can get stuck into these and get this finger moving again, because that'd be quite nice. If it was the other hand, if it was the left pinky, I'd be fucked, because I couldn't play any guitar. Alas, I was spared that embarrassment. Anyway, let's kick off with some fucking metal news, man. Right, so opening up with our usual obituary section... Uh, Brent Young, the f- first bassist for one of my favourite bands, Trivium, has passed away. Um, so Brent was a the bass of Trivium since they formed in 1999, up until, I believe, 2004, just before Paolo joined the band. He played on the first demo, which uh, I think it's floating around somewhere. I believe it's floating around on um, the old YouTubes and whatnot, and... On the first album, Ember um, to Inferno. Christ, I nearly forgot it then. But anyway, that's very sad. Um, he was, I believe, in his late 30s, age 37. Of course, death not announced. But he was in a band with other uh, true alumni, Travis Smith, um, which we n- never got to hear, so that's really fucking lame. So he can join the ranks of many other rockers we've lost this year, which kind of fucking sucks. Alas, we will continue and we'll move on. Uh, Rotten Christ have cancelled their tour. Uh, the 2021 tour, Destev- De- Devastation on the Nation tour, um, which they were going to take with Bork, Nagar, Wolfheart and Abigail Williams and Imperial Triumphant. So that's kind of interesting because usually you see 2020 tours get knocked on 
and postponed, but this one's just flat out cancelled, and this looks like it was already a postponed tour. So this is kind of intriguing to me because it's it's one of the first tours that's not been knocked on. It's just been flat out fucking killed. All right, so maybe some of the management side, maybe some of the band side, maybe someone in the entire process in this signal chain of things happening to make tours happen is getting sick of the uncertainty, especially in the States where it seems everything's getting worse before it gets better. Maybe they're sick of it and they're just pulling the plug completely and thinking, we'll reconvene when everything's better and back to normal. Um, Yeah. Very, very, very intriguing. Think about the situation in the UK is we're we're not going to get tours back for a while, I don't think. We're certainly seeing venues still suffering. The AV community is still suffering. We're not seeing any trickle-down effect from any grants. We're seeing some some gigs happening, some one-off gigs. We've had some socially distanced gigs, gigs like outdoor gigs and things like that, which is bringing the work in, which is interesting. But there's some of the AV companies, like these are the guys that actually put on the show, like the bigger companies that are going, that are going under by the fucking spades, man. Like I've seen two auction houses... Uh, playing host to the assets owned by two AV companies in this past week. And we're talking like 16,000 items, like PA systems, mixing desks, lights, displays, projectors, everything you can fucking think of. It's all fucking going to the highest bidder. And as a result, there's not going to be a lot of companies left. So this is going to be a very interesting business landscape when gigs do come back. But we'll have to just see what happens there, man. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne is starting a new album apparently fine fine <laughs> this last album uh, Ordinary Man was pretty good I think it was seemed a little bit jarring to get to grips with it at first because it wasn't Zach on the guitar um, I think we had a few guest appearances which kind of threw the consistency all over the place but all in all it's a fucking good record and quite frankly I even like the Post Malone song I think that's one of the strongest ones in the album I think it's just a bit mental and I like that shit one thing I quite like about this is given the state of Ozzy's health and a lot of people like to talk about Ozzy's health um, but there's a kind of inclination that he's on the decline there's nothing tangible to say that other than the odd injury that he gets which is fine for a fucking 70-year-old. It's completely above board for a 70-year-old to be off the fucking... off the off the tall wagon for a couple of months because he breaks his goddamn neck or something like that. But really, I'd completely accept it if I just said, you know what, I'm retiring from touring, I'm going to be a fucking studio band for the rest of my career. Because at the end of the day... The label's going to pay for, stu- for Ozzy to get into the studio every couple of months, and they're going to recoup that cost in fucking buckets quite quickly and they don't have to take on all the overheads of a worldwide tour and a, a promotional cycle if they know that Ozzy's going to be banging it out every few months frankly these days with things the distribution models like Bandcamp bands should really be just banging out EPs every few months anyway so I think Ozzy should just join the fucking line get stuck in churn out some albums every few months I don't mind if you get some songwriters involved just fucking do it just keep keep them a Keep my metal metabolism up to a fucking racing pace. That's what I want. And why not do that with Sabbath? I reckon Ioma's going to do a, a solo album soon. That should be quite good. This is me, pure speculation. I just don't think Ioma's want to sit down and retire and do nothing for a while. Yeah, New Aussie album, that'd be pretty good. I hope he turns, around, uh, turns it around quite quickly like he did this last one. 
Okay, here's some fucking tedious news. So ACDC appeared to be teasing something, but this is what fucking gets my goat on this. Every headline saying, is ACDC teasing something huge this week? It's like, well, there's going to be one of two things, isn't it? It's going to be, they're either got a new album out or they're going to fucking retire. That's what, they're, they're, you know, if they're going to tease something, if they're going to put money behind it, it's going to be a new album. And this is what really fucks me off. So most of the articles are pertaining to a poster that's gone by An- gone up by Angus's high school. Fucking leave the schools out of it. Don't need to go to schools for news. Ugh, it's not, it's the, the, the metal media, the metal website. I'm not, you, clearly, you can tell I'm in a shit mood today. It's fucking, it's it's one hair above clickbait. The way they're presenting all this, it's just fucking pathetic. We're going to get a new ACDC album. That's going to be good. Hopefully they drop it in a matter of, you know, the turnaround between learning about it and it actually dropping should be fucking hours, I hope. Because I like that shit. But this isn't this isn't news. Is ACDC teasing something? It's like ACDC done fuck all for, like, what, five years? It's probably going to be an album. Get over yourself. Just say it's probably an album. Fucking hell. Fuck me. Right, Hawkeye, Hawkeye, Hawkeye from Fear Factory. He's left Fear Factory. Um, I, I might be, in, I might be in a unique position here because I couldn't give a fuck really. It's the new Fear Factory is pretty good. Um, post reunion Fear Factory is pretty good. It's not like it's not demanufactured or anything to that level, but it still is pretty good. But I mean, frankly, Hawkeye's contribution to that band was probably the least significant. Still the higher, top tier, higher tier, but least significant. So go on, mate, fuck off, I don't care. Um, the thing about this particular saga, anyway, is uh, it's coming off the back of some legal troubles and a GoFundMe, camp- GoFundMe campaign to get the new album finished, even though it was recorded back in, what, 2017 or something to that effect. Um, as soon as you hear the words legal troubles or legal dispute with a band, it's kind of fucking game over, really. I think. So when the words Hawkeye has left Fear Factory and releases statement clarifying the situation, I just don't give a fuck. We kind of know what's happening here. I'm not going to do you the indignity as well of, of reading out this statement. It's You know exactly what it fucking says. We've been through this a million times with singers leaving bands and trailblazing with a bunch of fucking drama. Leave him to it. Go on then, fuck off, mate. We'll let uh, we'll let someone else take the mantle. Hopefully Dino does get someone else, because like I say, I think uh, Hawkeye's contribution was the, the least, the less significant one. Still top tier, but the less significant one. I think you can definitely see a... There's definitely an opportunity in that band to bring some new blood in and do uh, do something completely fresh with it. But because I'm, a, I'm tedious and I'm, I'm not a very interesting person, I'm more interested in the Nuclear Blast side of it. So Nuclear Blast have obviously stopped paying for this fucking album. If if Dino's heading to um, the social medias and the crowdfunding options to get this thing over the line, Nuclear Blast must just be putting their feet up saying, well, we've filled our quota. We've, we've funded this up to the budget line as we expected to do so. And if it's not finished, it's your fault, Dino. You saw it out. So I wonder if... I wonder if they're cashing in the chips. I don't know if what the Fear Factory deal was with Nuclear Blast, if they've got to turn around more albums with them, or if that's it and they're going to be released and then maybe Dino has the opportunity and the room to do what they want for as long as they want. I don't know. But from the band side, it should be an interesting opportunity. 
from the Leo side, yeah, I'm just I'm intrigued by that. But then again, that's like my the Roadrunner series. It, I'm 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 really intrigued by the, the sort of the mechanics of how you oil the machine of metal being produced. More on that later, I guess. But I'm not too worried about. I know Hawkeye has been a mainstay in, in Fear Factory. There's not been any Fear Factory without him. But we've seen this happen before. Alice in Chains are doing pretty good without um, uh, Lane Staley. Obviously, it's not the same band, but it's, it's certainly, they certainly are producing some pretty good shit. Um, every every band except... Um, I can't even think of a band that hasn't turned a singer around. Like a classic band, like Maiden did it. Black Sabbath had done it in fucking spades. Van Halen did it in fucking spades. Deep Purple changed singers. I'm pretty sure... They, yeah, they're pretty sure they changed singers a few times. Motorhead are like the only old band who haven't changed singers at some point. It's going to be absolutely fine, guys. Sit down, calm down. Hawkeye can sort of like whisk into obscurity and do his own projects, and that's fine on his own terms. And we're now free of this fucking drama web that's spinned up, or has been spun up. Finish the album, Dino. Give us what we want. Get on with it. Crack on. Awesome. Cheers. Great. So, Raw's not here, as I've, I've, I've stressed so there's no one here to give you any metal tat um, but I found some anyway so I'm going to have to take his place and, and 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 provide the metal tat to the metal masses first of all it's been teased this hasn't been con- confirmed but there's been a, a tease of some Pantera branded beer uh, as teased by uh, Phil Anselmo as reported by Metal Injection um, Anselmo wrote on Instagram the best of Pantera was released on this day 17 years ago what's your favourite track? I have a feeling he didn't fucking author that Instagram post. I don't think he'd be... He, he wouldn't give a shit what my favourite track is. This beer bottle in the pick was a special promo item. We might just have a Pantera, Pantera beer announcement coming soon. Wink, wink. Hmm. Cool, I guess. The thing is, in the background, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to join it up with all the other fucking beers that have been branded by metal bands. <clears throat> so we're going to have our... I mean, we're going to have our sort of top shelf... Um, metal branded beer night where we just get shit faced on uh, and, and rank the branded beers uh, in order of preference I guess that'd be pretty good so maybe I'll make a list and maybe I'll bring it to him next week when he's back uh, more metal tat this is like, this is fucking culinary tat as well Alice Cooper has a, a announced a line a line of hot sauces presumably to go with the chocolate milk that he announced a few months ago uh, so this is provided by Loudwire. The Shock Rocker has a trio of new branded sauces that may be a shock to your system. You've got Welcome to My Nightmare, No More Mr. Nice Guy, and Poison. All named after Cooper songs and have an increasing heat level. Yeah, no fucking shit. Uh, all three hot sauces can be found as part of his partnership with United Sources. In general, I don't believe food should be painful, but in the case of my hot sauce, it's pain, pleasure, pain, pleasure. Just repeat until satisfied, says Cooper. Great, cool. I'm all in. But, you know, unfortunately to, uh, what's his name, Michael Anthony from Van Halen, he had his own hot sauce. Move over, it's time for another um, geriatric old man to try and regain a connection to his fucking taste buds through painful hot sauces. Ah, glory sip my coffee there. Um, It's come to my attention as well that um, we have, I'm not going to call them a sister podcast, but you know we did that uh, Roadrunner docuseries, well starting the, the, the Roadrunner docuseries a couple of weeks ago. Turns out there is another podcast doing something similar, it's called Meep Meep 
M-E-E-P, M-E-E-P, as in Meet Meep, the Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote Roadrunner noise. So the Meet Meep podcast is hosted by Ryan Rainbow, uh, and their intention is to go through and analyze every Roadrunner release uh, from Typo Negatives, uh, Bloody Kisses in 1993. So they're literally going through every single release that they've put out. Um, perhaps it's every significant release. I haven't gone so far into it that I could uh, tell you if it's every single one or every significant one. Either way, it's fucking great. It's really good, and it's a really good companion to what we're doing over here, which is like the history of Roadrunner, trying to get a bit of a chronology and connecting all the dots in the background. So I highly recommend you check that out. That's Meep Meep Podcast. Definitely have a have a, have a listen to that. Um, so new bands that I'm digging. So there's only one new band that I'm really digging at the minute. It's because he's fucking haunting my uh, social media, and that's Dream Troll. We've talked about him before. Um, but the guitarist keeps posting updates to solos he's laying onto the new album. So I made an effort and actually listened to their, their latest release called Second to None. And it is fucking... I would, I, I'm almost... I'm also straining calling my, calling it metal out and out metal because it's a bit of everything. It's so fucking accessible. There's so much going on in there. It's almost like leaning towards King Gizzard and the uh, Lizard Wizard in terms of variety. But it's heavy as fuck. It's tight as fuck. It's consistent as fuck in terms of like the sound quality on that album. I need to figure out where they got it recorded, if it was a home studio or what. But check it out. Dream Troll, second to none. And they're local. They're Leeds lads. So fucking get that in your fucking face. Um... Now, as a slight aside, I can let Raw take on the mantle next week in terms of good new metal that we haven't talked about yet. However, uh, because I'm writing the road... I know I'm sorry for constantly referring to this road runner shit, but I've, I've been working very hard on it. It's taken up a lot of my time, and it's a lot of fun to do. But in researching and writing the second part to that, I've actually been tracking every single road runner release since about 1986, and I'm finding a load of bands that were sort of left by the wayside in terms of the conventional... Um, Accessibility, so bands you've just never fucking heard of who are shit hot. Absolutely fucking shit hot. Um, I will confess, I haven't gone too far into the rabbit hole on these bands, but these are the ones that stuck out to me. So, fucking fasten your seatbelts. You're in for a completely tedious fucking ride. Right, okay, number one, right? Check out Realm. Uh, album is Endless War. It was released in November 1988. It's just fucking tech thrash from Wisconsin. Um, they do a fucking thrash metal cover of Eleanor Rigby by uh, the Beatles, which is fucking badass. Get stuck in. Next, Toxic, T-O-X-I-K, album name, Think This, released in 1989, another thrash band. Just fucking balls to the wall. It, I, can't even, I don't even think I find any DNA in thrash I hear these days from these bands. It's a completely fresh sort of like balls to the wall approach to thrash back then. It's weird when you think about the amount of thrash that was out and the amount that actually survived and therefore what we consider to be thrash and what is actually out there in the saturated world of thrash. Uh, Artillery by Inheritance, uh, released in 1990, uh, produced by Fleming uh, Rasmussen uh, of Metallica Alumni. Uh, Next, I've I've highlighted these in a different colour, which means I haven't listened to them all the way through. Uh, Malevolent Creation, The Ten Commandments. That's Malevolent Creation, the band. And the release is called The Ten Commandments. Uh, April 24th, 1991, they came out. And this is like a landmark in the Florida death metal sound. So this is sort of like in your Morbid Angel um, sort of territory. So give that a listen. Uh, And the last one on this really fucking weird off-the-fucking-beaten-path list 
uh, Gorgut, G-O-R-G-U-T-S, uh, released The Erosion of Sanity on January the 19th, 1993. Give all those a listen. Get them in your face and fucking enjoy yourself. That's my advice. Right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fuck off and I'm going to fill up this coffee again. Uh, and I'll speak to you all in a matter of seconds. And we are back. And it's just occurred to me that today is actually National Coffee Day. So that's fucking good. Because I have to call myself a fresh motherfucking brew. Right, so in terms of the feature, quote-unquote, today, I'm going to think of a different word for that because it sounds so fucking lame. Um, obviously, I've not got raw with me. So what I'm, I've done is... Uh, as a side story to the Roadrunner documentary series, I'm going to bang on for a while about Hawker Records, which, if you remember from last week, or I think it was two weeks ago now, um, Hawker is an imprint of Roadrunner that was formed in 1986 um, to cover all the hardcore records. So there's a number of other things that me and, and Raw want to do, uh, including the most metal video games, um... Since I'm calling it the Saints of Latter-day Thrash, like which thrash bands have the best careers post-2000, like your 80s thrash and your classic thrash and things like that. There's all sorts of want to do, but if you do have any ideas, do send them in, like our good mate Eric, who fucking keeps sending me all sorts of awesome ideas, which do make the backlog. I do promise you that, Eric. They are making it onto the spreadsheet. Um, and we might be able to get around to it. But for today, for this slightly shorter episode, uh, because Raw's not here... I'll embellish you with the history of Runner Records, part 1A, side story, Hawker Records. So, as mentioned previously, Hawker was an imprint of Roadrunner Records that came about when Holly Lane opened up the New York Roadrunner offices in 1986. Uh, The imprint itself would come to be short-lived, but this is a, a slight deviation from the main Roadrunner story is pretty critical to understanding uh, the Roadrunner business practices and trends, because obviously, because um, it was just an imprint of Roadrunner Records, it's effectively a child company. It still follows the same business model in a very, very similar capacity. So it really does serve as like a good prelude to part two, which I'm working on. I can get into the nitty gritty on what exactly these bands had to deal with on a daily basis. <clears throat> Similarly, Hawker Records does serve as a prominent landmark in uh, the story of the New York City hardcore scene of the late 80s. Things like CBGBs and all that good shit. So, this entire story is very much born of an awesome interview with Hawker founder John Bellow uh, for a publication called No Echo. No Echo is available online, and this interview is available online, and I will be sure to include the link wherever this is being thrown up, which, if it's anything like the first part, it will be on Spotify, it will be on YouTube, it will be on our blog. If you just Google um, Temple of Blair blog, it will be somewhere floating around in the infosphere. So let's talk for a little bit about John Bellow. Born and raised in Canarsie, Brooklyn. Uh, let me know if I've not pronounced that correctly. John came from what I'm kind of regarding as like your sort of standard metalhead background in terms of music. I think a lot of metalheads, they tend to get started on your classic rock, like your Zeppelins and maybe even your Rolling Stones. 
um, maybe your Deep Purples and your Sabbaths and things like that. Things that would be considered classic rock in the sort of conventional zeitgeist. But he got into the Ramones after watching uh, the Uncle Floyd show, which is a, or was, a New York local variety show. And that kind of set the scene for him. That's it. Now he's into hardcore. That, that, that switched him straight over to punk and hardcore. Um, he served a, a stint as the music director at Brooklyn College's radio station, which is a trend you'll see throughout this industry. A lot of the main players end up working in, in college radio. Uh, that's where they tend to get their starts. Uh, when, so while he was working at Brooklyn College's radio station, he was sent all manner of records from any record labels who wanted any of their shit playing. Um, it's a great way to get yourself exposed to new music, I guess, because all the labels want you, the college radio station, to play their stuff. Uh, so after a while there, he eventually worked at Tower Records in the cassette department. Uh, so on moving from college radio to uh, to Roadrunner, uh, John Bellow said, I found out that one of the guys I worked with at Tower Records was married to a woman named Holly Lane, who worked at Roadrunner Records. He mentioned that his wife was looking for an intern. So it was a great way for me to learn the business. I was calling radio stations to see if they were playing the Roadrunner artists and all that kind of stuff. We were pushing King Diamond a lot because it was that was the artist who was the big seller for the label at the time. Uh, we can deduce from all that that this was in 1987 and around the Abigail album cycle for King Diamond, as mentioned previously. That was the one that made the top 20. Or top 20? Top 200 in Billboard charts. So Fatal Portrait, which is King Diamond's debut, came out in 1986. Um, but all I could find was that it sold over 100,000 in the U.S. Um, to date, as opposed to 1986. So, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking this is 1987 when uh, John's getting his internship at Roadrunner. So Holly Lane uh, was Roadrunner's first U.S. hire, but also uh, the chief operating officer of the U.S. arm. However, it will become clear that, like Case, she wore many, many hats. In recruiting John as an intern, it seems that John inherited some of Holly's duties in A&R in that capacity. Uh, so when John was asked about his relationship with the founder of Roadrunner Records, Case Wessels, he was a great guy. Uh, the first artist I remember telling him to sign was uh, Rollins Band. Uh, or maybe Rollins Band, depending on what, how you pronounce it. Henry Rollins uh, called me and said he wanted 50 grand for the deal, which wasn't bad at all. But he wanted to keep all of the publishing. I told Case, and he was like, oh, no, we don't do that. Roadrunner kept all the publishing back then. I argued that Rollins tore his ass off, but Case didn't want to do it without his publishing money. Uh, the second artist I told Case to sign will make you laugh. Holly had given me a demo tape of Vernon Reed's, Vernon Reed's Living Colour. I loved the tape and wanted to, went to see them at CBGB's, and then told Case we, we need to sign them. Case said, a black rock band will never make it in the United States. A year later, they're selling millions of records and touring with the Rolling Stones. And Case goes, John, I'm really upset because you didn't force me to sign Living Colour. I think he felt obligated to help me sign some bands after that because he felt so bad about the whole Living Colour thing. So that's an interesting sign of the times. Gotta remember that Case comes from a very... Uh, he's, in, he's immediately post-war, isn't he? He's practically the greatest generation, if I'm not mistaken. He must have been born, if not during the war, then immediately after... Um, the statement that a black rock band will never make it in the United States. Perhaps a little bit short-sighted on this part. Uh, so there's two main things that are quite telling for me in that statement. Um, regardless of the above case, still comes across as quite the top geezer. Um, John describes him as a great guy. Uh, everyone t seems to have this kind of relationship for him. They don't really have a lot of bad things to say about him. 
Uh, John also mentions that he was a great guy. I actually think Case is still alive. Um, maybe John doesn't know that. I don't know. Secondly, we get our first proper insight into the bog-standard Roadrunner deal. Uh, Roadrunner keeps all publishing. This means that they have the leverage in every transaction involving the distribution or the broadcasting of the song, artist, album, blah, 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 anything. So you can't lend your music to your mate's radio station. You've got to run it past case. You've got to do all that stuff. Run it all past case. And Roadrunner takes a slice of the pie whenever that music is played. That seems to be the, uh, the mainstay in any Roadrunner deal. The thing I find quite contentious is the fact that John says that 50 grand for Rollins Band is a good deal. And you'll find out in a little while as I go through. <laughs> so remember at this point, Hawker Records isn't a thing yet. We're still in Roadrunner world. Uh, John's working under Holly as an intern. As we mentioned in part one, Roadrunner was toe-to-toe with Combat and the newly formed In Effect Records, uh, both imprints of Relativity Records. So just to add a bit of spice in there, John wanted to put out a split record with Sick of It All and Crackdown. But uh, an individual named Howie Abrams from In Effect, one of their competitors, ended up snatching Sick of It All on Relativity. So that's a name you need to remember, Howie Abrams. Um, So in the context of this, it looks like Roadrunner is identifying the competitors, especially in New York City. That's where all these these great labels were based. Um, And eventually... Case asks John, so that music that you're always playing, uh, what is it? And John's Brooklyn accent kind of met Case's Dutch ears and Hawker was born. If you think about it, if you, a strong New York accent saying hardcore sounds a bit like Hawker, especially if you're Dutch. Um, so Hawker was born and John was at the helm as founder. The idea behind Hawker, as we said in part one, was Hawker was the imprint dealing with the hardcore records. Roadrunner all over is a hard rock and metal Label, Hawker is an imprint, a sub-label, a child company, if you will, dealing with just the uh, hardcore brand and hardcore signings. And yeah, that was its mission statement, effectively. So John wanted to call it something like First Defense Records or Rooting Awakening to give it some semblance of, you know, identification. If you see First Defense Records, you kind of think, yeah, this is going to be some heavy shit, hardcore shit. But no, Case wanted Hawker. I quite like that. Maybe it's like the Britishness in me who likes a good, you know, I like it when things come from a joke. Obviously, Hawker was, you know, a mishearing of a New York accent saying hardcore. So the Hawker logo itself was drawn by the drummer of soon-to-be Hawker band token entry, Ernie Parada. In the same way that Roadrunner leaned into metal in the early 80s, it seems Hawker was on an opportunity um, to do something on a far smaller scale. Token entry singer Timmy Chunks said about the potential opportunity at the time having just signed to Hawker. It all felt different. In 1988, bands were blowing up in our scene. Punk was done. It felt like it was hardcore's turn, especially New York hardcore. I think bands had that thought, or an underlying feeling that, yeah, we can do this. Uh, The first record out on Hawker Records was No For An Answer's A Thought Crusade in 1988. Um... You'll notice, hopefully I've got this on the screen on the YouTube uh, cut of this, the cover for A Thought Crusade has a rather familiar font. Looks like a fucking meme font, dude. Uh, You can see, hopefully, on the bottom left, you can see the Hawker logo uh, on the bottom left of the, the back cover of this one. So here's John Bellow on the No For An Answer album. 
Like the other records I did at Hawker, the budget for a Thought Crusade was around $5,000. The band did a great job with the way the record sounds because it's not overproduced like some of the other albums from that time period. Domino Principle and Rusty Pipes are two phenomenal songs from that album. Uh, Singer Dan O'Mahony um, had this to say. Firstly, John Bella from Hawker contacted us at an ideal time when I wasn't sensing a lot of enthusiasm or at least prioritization from Revelation, their current label at that time, in terms of an N, uh, no, for, no for an Answer LP. Furthermore, we fit the uh, Revelation label image at the time a little bit less and less and less every day. At the time, the DIY versus the major uh, label debate was in full swing, and in my opinion was being oversimplified. My thinking in the late 80s being that if you could contractually protect your lyrical and artistic content completely while ensuring vastly superior distribution, you had an obligation to your, uh, to your message to go for that larger avenue. So contrary, contrary to legend, the advance money was around 4000 covering recording and a little merchandising, and played very little role in the decision. So it's interesting for me. So interesting that both those dudes remember the, the amount of money differently. Uh, it could have been that the amount that uh, No Finance were given was actually $5,000, but they're based in California, so maybe it cost them a grand to fly them over to New York, leaving them with four grand to record the album. I don't know. Um, but again, it's quite telling here that the normal thing was to have a budget of approximately five grand. Um, yeah, above John saying that a good deal for Rollins was 50k. Maybe that's just in context. Maybe 50k for Rollins, who was already a pretty established act at that point, I believe. If I'm thinking Black Flag was mid mid to late 80s, I think. Either way, he considered that a good deal. I'm not quite sure that of, of where that's coming from, especially if everything else, for everyone else, it's 5k. Anyway, so from here, I'm just going to spitball about some other records that, put, that Hulk put out. Um, chronologically so the next release would be Token Entry's Jaybird as mentioned in part 1 so there's a fun anecdote to this so the Token Entry guys came to me and I told this is John Bellow again the Token Entry guys came to me and I told them I can get them $5,000 to do the record and they agreed they got Jerry Williams to engineer it and we originally had Flea for the Red Hot Chili Peppers on board to produce it but once the studio was booked to make Jaybird the Peppers were getting big from their mother's milk album and they had a big European tour coming up, so Flea couldn't do it. Once I told the band that Flea couldn't do it, Ernie suggested Dr. No of the Bad Brains to produce it, because they knew each other from playing shows together. So that's pretty cool. Nearly had a, a Flea-produced Hawker record. And again, this 5K album budget is clearly a Hawker staple at this point. Conversely, uh, singer Timmy Chunks, our boy again, reported having never seen a royalty check from Roadrunner. So I'm guessing... We can infer from that that perhaps there's not a lot of individual revenue being made from these initial deals. Yeah, a lot of conjecture there and a bit of an assumption, but I, I don't know. Uh, Mike Gitter, who is another name you should remember, uh, teed up John to Wrecking Crew, a band, uh, another band, another hardcore band, making various waves, pointing out that the crossover potential, because uh, they had all the hardcore fans who love stuff like uh, SSD and Chromags, but also the metal crowd, uh, Wrecking Crew's Balance of Terror would come out in 1989 off the back of that My Gitter Tip. That's pretty cool. Um, 
Wrecking Crew uh, Balance of Terror, the, the front cover is a little bit more cartoony, if you ask me. It looks like the front of a Viz uh, comic. Okay, so as is fairly common in the day, the idea was thrown about to put together a compilation of uh, of bands for release on the label. So occasionally you'd get uh, like Roadrunner Presents uh, um, or whatever the label may be, just to kind of like showcase these bands. Uh, Case would go on to suggest that this, in this context for Hawker, should be a live album. So John arranged for the live recording to take place at the infamous CBGB's uh, club on Sunday the 9th, April 1989 which would feature No For An Answer, Token Entry, Wrecking Crew, and Rest In Pieces. And here I've got a picture of uh, some of the guys outside CBGB's Hawker Records Showcase Free For All show with members of Wrecking Crew, Rest, uh, Rest In Pieces, and No For An Answer preparing for the photo shoot. photo is taken by Ken Salamo. The CBGB Showcase tends to be fondly remembered in the hardcore scene. Again, uh, Dan O'Mahony remembers it as a huge day for meeting legends of the era. I guess it was just a great gathering of hardcore uh, acts. A YouTube user Lionel PFAFF remarked, I was there. Hands down, the best show I ever saw at CB's. So yeah, I'm guessing this gig is meant to have been like quite a big deal at the time. Uh, the product of this effort was the Hawker Records Presents Free For All LP. Uh, footage of the No For An Answer set can be found here. Um, in fact, I'll try and throw that onto the screen for you. Similarly, the Rest in Pieces set can be found here. Check your headphones on this one, guys. Outside of those mentioned, Hulk would be the home for two other hardcore punk acts, Pagan Babies and Jones Very, featuring Vic Bondi from Articles of Faith. John himself would also be heavily involved in Rest in Pieces, another hardcore band drafted in by Road Racer. Chucking some images up there. So, as it comes to a close, after 17 releases from five bands, Hawker wrapped up in 1989. Uh, John's reported as saying, The writing was on the wall. The records I was working on were not selling. I think that happened because of two reasons. First off, Roadrunner wasn't pushing any of the Hawker releases. Also, Relativity Records were distributing my records. So if you are Relativity, who would you push? Sick of it all and Killing Time or Token Entry and No For An Answer? Listen, that's business, and I get it. Case finally said we should call it quits. I stayed on it a bit with Roadrunner, but it, it wasn't the same. Howie from Relativity eventually came to the label and eventually brought in bands like Madball. But I have to say, it was a lot of fun to do. Hawker and Case were always cool about everything. I'm proud of those records and getting to work with those bands. Uh, and... As a closing image, I've got an image of Ernie Parada, uh, John Bellow, and Timmy Chunks from Left to Right in 2016. So that's nice to see them all together, still hanging out after, what, 20 or so years? 30 or so years, Christ. Anyway, so that's the story of Hawker Records, short-lived, uh, fondly remembered. A um, few questions. A few questions, a few musing thoughts after that one. I'd like to know if the internship which John came under was a paid internship under Holly, or it was just a box standard internship. I'm not getting, I'm not gauging his age properly at this point, so I don't know what situation is. I don't know if um, Holly had the budget for paid internships. I don't know if 
the game plan from Case's perspective was to harvest and um, <laughs> improve talent and like incubate the talent in the US. That's just, you know, that's a wider question for me. Again, I'm curious about the Rollins um, 50K figure, what that's coming from it. Why is that a good figure? It feels to me rather largely departed from the normal 5K figure for everyone else. Um, I'm wondering how far 5K would go as well. I mean, if 5K was the standard for Roadrunner to take on a new signing, Merciful Fate took 12 days to do Melissa. Was that on the 5K budget? Thinking back to the first part. Or did the gamble, did Case gamble a bit more then? Did they give him some more money? I mean, 5K back then nowadays is about 10 grand. And I can think of fucking a million things to do with 10 grand right now, especially in the context of recording. Could definitely get a small band, some good studio time for a while. I'd love to know what uh, John means in that last statement by it wasn't the same. Presumably he wasn't spearheading anything and he was a bit dissatisfied by this. Perhaps. I don't know. But yeah, that's the story of Hawker. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that quick side story uh, to the Roadrunner story. Um, again, in the absence of Rory, it'll be difficult for me to really play off what the fuck I'm playing at. Because I bet you can guess it's all the Roadrunner shit. Uh, I've been enjoying the shit out of it, though. What I think I might do is I might do... I might take to the Twitches. I might take to Twitch and I might do, like, a listening party or something like that while I'm researching some more stuff for Roadrunner because these albums that Hawker put out, it is, it's worth listening to. It's some good shit. Again, it's a shame it fell by the wayside, but um, I won't mind cracking up in a few beers while I'm doing all this stuff and speaking to some people while listening to some good tunes. But, hey... That'd be a good laugh. What else am I playing at? I'm playing Among Us, which is obviously a, a nice cheaper game on many platforms, which is taking the world by storm. Um, but yeah, no, I'm not playing at a, a great lot this week. But we know what Raw's doing. He's invading castles in Switzerland, like I said earlier. So there's no fucking need for an update from him. But hey, man, um, thanks very much for listening, especially considering this is a shorter one and we're a man down. Uh, if you do want to get in touch... Do holler at um, Temple of Blair, B-L-E-H, at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter under the same name. I'm Robert Jet, spelled like Boba Fett. Raw's on football because he's clever. Um, and we hope we be back normally under normal circumstances next week. Uh, and hopefully this uh, Hawker section, I'll throw that up on a video at some point and all that shit so you can view that in your own time with all the pictures and all the sources and all that stuff. But thanks very much for listening and hope to speak to you all soon. Good luck.